0: Hi. Today we're completing the trilogy of intimacies explored on the Reengage curriculum. And this one is so important because the marriage relationship is different than any other human relationship. The two have become one. And as a result, each spouse plays a unique role in the spiritual growth of the other. This lesson will provide practical ideas for how to have the spiritual intimacy that every marriage should enjoy. I don't know if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, but whether you've seen it or not, you're probably familiar with at least two lines from the movie. One of them is, show me the money. And the other one near the end of the movie is when Tom Cruise desperately is trying to win Renee back and he says, you complete me. You complete me. I remember seeing that movie the first time. Uh, I don't know if if I've seen it a second time, but when I first saw that movie, I remember kind of rolling my eyes at that scene you complete me because I just remember it rang empty because they weren't married. You know they the, the it sounds romantic to say you complete me, I need you. you, you're you're my everything. All these things they they sound nice, but it's not really it's not really true, is it? However, You can turn to your spouse right now and say legitimately, you complete me because you do, you complete each other. By God's design, you complete each other. See, God designed marriage that once you say I do and you enter into a marital covenant by God's design, you complete each other. Ephesians 5 verse 31 says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. One flesh, that's oneness. That's the picture of completion here. And the math is kind of interesting. By God's design, one plus one equals one. The two come together and you are now one flesh. And, you know, there's a number of things that you might mix together that they don't truly become one. You take some cookie dough and chocolate chips, you mix them together, you got a chocolate chip cookie. And yes, they're mixed together, but they're not necessarily one because like I could picture a couple of my kids, you know, maybe all of them, if you gave them a chocolate chip cookie, they're likely to pick the chocolate chips out first, you know, eat the good stuff. You could pick the chocolate chips out of the cookie and it's not necessarily mixed. But here, this is more like an organic a, a chemical reaction when two different substances, chemicals, come together and it forms this new third thing that you can't now separate. That's, this, is, this is God's design, that the two become one. And we've been exploring what it means, what oneness really looks like. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about emotional intimacy, that you know each other, you're fully known by each other. Last week, we looked at sexual intimacy, what it means for the two to become one flesh and that God allows us to have this uniting, beautiful uniting act that there's a covenant renewal ceremony that happens in sexual intimacy. All aspects of oneness. But now we're looking at the fact that in being one, we we complete each other. See, God, practically speaking, has given us marriage to... Help us to, allow us to complete each other in the way that, really, what does it mean that we complete each other, spiritually speaking? So we looked at the emotional aspect of it, the physical, sexual aspect of it, but today I want to look at the spiritual aspects. but it's not some ethereal idea. This really is a bottom shelf idea because God wants to use marriage to sanctify us. And it's part of It's part of this idea of oneness. See, God has an end goal with all things. He's using all things to the end of conforming us to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28 says, All things work for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So all things work for the the good. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined with this purpose to be conformed to the image of his son. What God is doing in marriage, as he's doing also with suffering, with fellowship, with trials, with all things, is he's using all things, including marriage, to conform us to the image of his son, to make us more holy. Gary Thomas makes the statement, actually posed as a question from his book, Sacred Marriage. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us more holy, more than to make us happy? He's on to something there. So how does God conform us to the image of His Son, make us holy through oneness in marriage? Well, we can answer that by looking at the context of Ephesians 5 verse 21. So I'm gonna read a larger section than usual, but it's important to see all of this. Ephesians 5 verse 21, Paul says, "'Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. "'For the husband is the head of the wife, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the picture of completion. How do we pursue it? Well, let me just take these one point at a time. Number one, you complete each other when you embrace your interdependence. That's a long fill-in-the-blank word. You embrace your interdependence. The verse I get that from, Ephesians 5 21, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're part of one body. That's, that's the rationale here. We are interdependent, just like the head, the arms, the legs, the body, we're all part of one body. And the hands certainly need the head, our legs, we need our torso. I mean, we're interdependent. God has providentially arranged marriage in a way that when you're married, you're meant to need each other. You are never meant to be independent. So, Single people, you know, we're not meant to be independent either. They, they need the Lord, right? They also need the church community. But, but so do married people. The difference is married people have voluntarily entered into an illustration of their need for God. Because Christ is the head and, and we're the body. Because he says in verse 32, he goes on and says, this is a profound mystery. This picture of marriage, it's a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. The oneness that we have horizontally is an illustration or a shadow of the oneness that we have here vertically. Vertically, I need Christ. I know know that I need him. John 15, verse five, we're called to abide in him, abide in Christ. For apart from, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I need Christ. I feel that need when I feel weak. But 2 Corinthians 12, verses nine and 10, he says, Jesus says, for my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, when I'm weak, I am strong because in my weakness, I rely, I depend on Christ. Vertically, I need him. And now horizontally, God created us Individually, he created us incomplete, temperamentally, experientially. It's even seen in gender and all these different ways. We're not complete. We are not all that. Lone rangers will not thrive. Temperamentally, what I mean is there's aspects of my temperament that I bring to my marriage and there's aspects that Brandy brings. And it's almost as if I look back and I kind of wondered, how did I how did I get everything done before? I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm less than half the picture when I, when I consider what Brandy and I are together. Another way of saying it is like, Brandy and I together, it's like, I know I'm mixing my metaphors and saying this, but now it's like one plus one equals more than two. Because we're, our, our differences come to the table and we, we change each other and we have a larger vocabulary of, strengths and perspectives and experiences that we complete each other. And, and I sense that well, I, I need you. You know, you have your extroverts and your introverts, impulsive people, reflective, aggressive, you know, risk takers. And then you've got your protective people. They all bring aspects of truth it, when it comes to, um, say even conflict styles. Some of us are fight people, other people are flight people. You know, if your response to conflict or your, your gut reaction is always to run, is, is flight, that really is only wise in at most 50% of the situations. There's other times where you need to step in and, and actually fight. You need to step in and, and, and engage in a conflict. Well, when you marry someone, and let's say that the, you guys are different about that, If you are being sanctified by one another, if you're allowing God, if you're humble and teachable and you're allowing God to change you through your spouse, you become a person who has a larger vocabulary than your individual temperament. And you learn to see things in a different perspective. I've become a better planner since I've married Brandy. Brandy is the planner between the two of us, but I have become much more organized. Actually, Brandy and I adopted our first two, our our two boys. And the adoption process is one of those things that there is a lot of paperwork. There, there's a lot to do all around. If you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Well, when it came to all these different aspects of going through that process, some of the paperwork, for example, we had to create profile books and, and write uh, letters and all these different things. But we also had to gather spreadsheets and and gather old files and different things and Brandy and I both brought such different gifts to the table. I'm kind of the words guy and Brandy's the spreadsheet girl and we got that all done much faster than I can possibly imagine really anybody doing it alone. So that's just another example. You learn to look at the world through the eyes of another when you're married. That's another way you're interdependent. You see the world through the eyes of a different gender. There's an, there are times where I, I instinctively know this is what Brandy would do in this situation. And it's almost instinctive and almost automatic now. Okay, point made there, I hope. So you complete each other when you embrace your interdependence. I have it stated another way here. In other words, if you're embracing your interdependence, then you're striving to have one heart and one mind. Because if you have two different people trying to come together, it's easy to imagine how that's a clash, how, you know, oil and water aren't going to mix. But if you strive to have one heart and one mind, then these differences become something beautiful. So here's some examples. If you both feel called in different directions as husband and wife, realize that God is not going to do that. He's not going to call husband to one place and wife to another place. You strive to have one heart and one mind. And in doing that, you wrestle to find out what what is God's will. If you're on your own, it's easy to think that you're following God. But in this situation, you're sanctified. If you butt heads over parenting philosophies, striving to have one heart and one mind might look like pursuing reconciliation, you know, figuring it out, pursuing reconciliation, whether that means having difficult conversations, learning to fight well, fighting for closeness rather than settling for just staying together, you know, striving for growth and closeness. A lot of people fall short of this completion when they just settle for being roommates, you know, and avoiding certain topics, and just coexisting, leading parallel lives. How this relates to holiness is that as you learn to live with your spouse in oneness, you're more able to live out your oneness with Christ. Okay, so next point. You complete each other when you learn how to lovingly deal with each other's sin. This is obviously a challenge But let me look at the verse that I get that from. Verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I see uncleanness here, that whole picture. It's it's a metaphor for sin. Think think about what it means to clean your body. It, cleaning your body, that's a private thing, isn't it? We all have, you know, brushing your teeth, flossing, clipping your fingernails. If you got you know your shower, I mean all these different things, they're very they're very private and Not to be crude, but at points, it it can get kind of gross, right? Yet, when you get married, you're giving somebody else access to your body, to who you are. You you become one body and you're giving them permission to clean you. Scripture says that when you get married, your spouse has a kind of access to you, to the most private parts of your life. So it means that your spouse will see will see you in ways that nobody else sees you and will take part in cleaning the dirt. Just to get real practical, Brandy knows things about me that I can keep hidden with the rest of the world. She has the most unflattering perspective on who I am, the good, bad, and the ugly. She may know some good things about me, but I'm happy to parade those things around. But the other stuff, you know, my, my... moodiness, the ugly things that I might say when I, I don't feel like anybody's listening. Brandy seems to, she sees that and by being married, she has the permission, granted I can resist this, but she has the permission, the calling and I with her to deal with what she sees, to, to confront it. And so you learn to really complete each other when you learn how to lovingly, deal with each other's sin. To put it in Star Trek terms, your spouse will go where no man has gone before. There are things that I really wish Brandy didn't see, but she does. And I know that goes both ways. So yeah, if you are a moody person, your spouse knows it. If you're an indecisive person, if you're anxious and scared about certain things, your spouse sees that if you're abrupt and critical or an impatient. And the thing is, your problems also become your spouse's problems. Your anxiety, your moodiness, those things. It's not that just this person is kind of sitting and watching and saying, hey, I can, I can fix that. No, your problems become their problems, but they also become their burdens. And if you learn to lovingly deal with each other's sin, you're pursuing oneness, you're completing each other. You're fostering oneness when you don't resent your spouse for pointing out things about you that they see. Think about it. If those problems of yours become your spouse's problems and it's their burdens, if you are pursuing oneness, then there's a permission given to actually speak into it. And if you resent that, if you get defensive, if you, if you resist it, you're making oneness a very difficult thing to occur. <clears throat> you know, the important thing is there's got to be a level of humility in the way you receive correction, but there's also certainly got to be a loving gentleness in the way you give it. So on your notes, a couple points. Learning how to lovingly deal with each other's sin means that you allow your spouse to speak to you about your sin. If you're touchy, if you refuse to listen, if you say things like you mind your own business or I'll mind mine, you're living in denial. You're denying the one flesh nature, the oneness that God has given you. And he wants you to experience. He wants you to be able to grow. So it helps you to remember that you stand before God, not before your spouse. When your spouse points out something, you aren't standing before your spouse. You're standing before God. It should allow you to be able to to listen to what they're saying and consider it. Maybe they're wrong, but maybe they're right good thing is, you don't stand before your spouse on the final judgment. You stand before God. So allow your spouse to speak to you about your sin. On the other hand, be careful to only address your spouse's sin with humility and gentleness. If you don't know who you are serving when you speak to your spouse, then stop and check your motives. What do I mean by that? Why are you confronting your spouse on... Let's say they're, they're messy around the house. He's not pulling his weight, helping with the dishes, or maybe they're, you name the sin. When you confront your spouse, if you're doing it because it fits your agenda, that you're tired of this, that you're sick of being taken for granted, or whatever it might be, you're serving yourself. You're not serving God. You're not serving your spouse. If you check your motives, though, and you stop and you realize this sin, it's hurting our relationship, but it's also, it's really hurting my spouse. And you want to lovingly see freedom, see joy. If you are serving God and you're loving your spouse, then you can lovingly and humility and with gentleness approach your spouse. Because the goal is not to conform your spouse according to your desires, but for your spouse to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's Romans 8, 29 again. If you're not confronting in love, then don't address it. Don't speak unless you are ready to be gentle. Galatians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brothers, if any one of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Can you imagine letting somebody else floss your teeth other than the dentist? You know, just letting somebody else give access to you. You want that person to approach gently. You don't want them blindfolded on a bus trying to floss your teeth. No, you want them to approach gently. So shouldn't you approach gently when addressing your spouse's sin? That's, it's common sense. And yet I think we all forget to do it in gentleness. Don't assume that you can just go home and apply this. You may, need, you may not be ready to confront your spouse's sin because there's too much venom behind it. There's too much resentment. Go back to the forgiveness lesson. Forgive your spouse and then confront them. Okay, so in humility, be teachable and be gentle. That's learning to deal with each other's sin. Here's my last big point. You complete each other when you carefully speak only life-giving words to your spouse. Now, a lot of these points are overlapping with previous lessons. This is overlapping with the message that we spoke on, uh, on communication. We need to be careful to only speak life-giving words because you're one flesh. God has chosen for this person to have more potential, your spouse has more potential to shape your self-image than anyone else. And that's by God's design. The world can think that you're plain, but if your husband or your wife thinks that you're wonderful, that you're beautiful, doesn't matter what the world thinks. If your spouse, you know, loves you, sees something great about you, it has more power than any other opinion. No one will hire you, but if your wife respects you, you have wind in your sails. And the power that your spouse has to be able to shape you, it's a, it's, it's a God-ordained reality. And that's reflected directly in the words that we speak to one another. Words have the power of life and death. We've mentioned this before, Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. And then also there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your words are powerful. And so as a simple reminder, you pursue oneness when you are careful to speak only life-giving words to your spouse. You know, as you learn to live in oneness with your spouse, what's so important about this is in doing that, you learn to live in oneness with your Savior and vice versa. Learning to live in oneness with Christ enables us to actually live more in oneness with our spouse. And there's joy, there's fullness, there's completion in all of that. Look how Jesus lovingly deals with us. He speaks life-giving words to us, doesn't he? You know, Jesus on the cross, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Praise God that we have a Savior who speaks life-giving words to us, who deals lovingly with our sin and has allowed us to enter into an interdependent relationship with Him, that He's chosen us, and we certainly need Him. That's the beauty of the completion we have with Christ, we experience the fullness of, joy, of the fullness of joy of oneness when we embrace the completion that we have with one another. Let me pray. Father, would you teach us what it means to be one with our spouses? Would you teach us what it means to be interdependent and to need our spouse and to strive to have one heart and one mind together? Help us to lovingly and humbly deal with each other's sin, to be teachable, and to be lovingly brave, but gentle in the way we confront sin that we see. And Lord, would you help us to do so with life-giving words. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.